Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Welcome to Murder Mile, a true crime podcast, an audio-guided walk featuring many of London's untold, unsolved and long-forgotten murders, all set within and beyond the West End. Today's episode began as a violent sexual assault on a young woman, a humiliating and traumatic rape which changed her life forever. But this isn't the victim's story and neither is it the culprits. It's about two innocent people who the system was designed to protect, but ultimately failed. Murder Marley's research used authentic sources. It contains moments of satire, shock and grisly details. And as a dramatization of the real events, it may also feature loud and realistic sounds, so that, no matter where you listen to this podcast, you'll feel like you're actually there. My name is Michael, I am your tour guide, and this is Murder Mile. Episode 93, The Landor House Murders. Today, I'm standing on Westbourne Park Road in Bayswater, W2. To the west, this road leads to Reg Christie's murder house at 10 Rillington Place. To the east, leads to Felix Sturber's twisted death pact at Ralph Court. We're three streets southeast of the culprits' homes of the Wormwood Scrubs Police Massacre, and two roads north of the mysterious death of Emmy Werner. Coming soon to Murder Mile. Westbourne Park Road is the architectural equivalent of a cinema hot dog. At first, you're drawn in by its alluring sights, sounds and smells. And as you take your first bite from either end, it proves to be a real treat to your senses. But by the time you reach the middle, you realise it's nothing more than a disgusting, soggy, smelly mess made from the cheapest offcuts from a dying donkey's anus. Being not quite Notting Hill, but not exactly Bayswater, this part of Westbourne Park Road is a nowhere land between the posh bits, where millionaires quaff quail's egg smoothies, celebrity pedos discreetly skulk like nonce ponces dressed in gold lame tracksuits, and the tax dodgers shuffle their 62 credit cards wondering which pseudonym to use today. Whereas here, it's so grim, anyone who strays too far from Notting Hill usually stops, thinks, hmm, maybe I'll turn back, and tucks their wallet into their shoe. This is the land where time forgot, but debt collectors and discount pizza parlours didn't. On the junction of Great Western Road is the Brunel Estate, a series of mismatched flats and tower blocks covering a square block right up to the A40 flyover. It's a dull, old, an imposing rabbit's warren of garages, bin chutes and concrete stairs that no one dares to enter except the residents. But it's not a bad place, as designed to provide affordable homes for good people in a pricey area. The Brunel Estate 
houses many vital key workers who keep the city alive, and in return receive very little pay or respect. Squashed between a looming tower block and two colossal sets of flats is Landor House, a 1960s two-story maisonette with brown brick walls, white windowsills, a flat roof, and a mishmash of handrails and ramps. As these identically quaint little homes are reserved for the estate's elderly and disabled. And although they look almost sweet, one of those little flats holds a very dark and recent secret. As it was here, on Friday the 13th of February 2015, at number four Landor House, that the parents of a convicted sex offender became the forgotten victims of a system designed to protect the innocent. A crime consists of a victim, a culprit, a motive and an incident. Sometimes an arrest, an investigation, a trial and hopefully a conviction, where those held responsible are punished. But these incidents also impact on those who exist on the case's periphery. In this case, the offender's parents. Hassan and Zoha Amrani were universally regarded by their friends and neighbours as a lovely couple. They were kind, polite, welcoming and hospitable. Having emigrated from Northwest Africa, Morocco is a stunning contradiction of geography. With its lush green valleys to the west, its scorching Sahara Desert to the south, and its snow-capped peaks of the Atlas Mountains to the north. But as beautiful as it is, Morocco is a region riddled with instability. As being hacked apart by its former French, Spanish, Portuguese and British invaders, who divvied up its lands, split apart its people, and plundered its wealth. What was left was a country in political, religious, and economic instability. Having fled to the calmer shores of the British Isles, Hassan and Zoha made a new home in West London, a strange land where the air was dirty, the water was hard, and the sun was hidden by thick grey gloom. Nothing grew here but concrete buildings and tarmac roads and being 2,000 miles from everything they knew, with the Brunel estate being crammed full of new faces, new voices, and new cultures from around the world. Finding a sense of safety here, as everyone was a stranger, they sought to create a new stability by embracing others like they were their own family. As people, Hassan and Zoha were raised to appreciate what they had, to strive to do better, and never to forget their values. So in the mid-1980s, when they were blessed by the birth of two beautiful babies, those family values were imprinted on their child's identities. With a girl they named Tofa, the Arabic word for gift, and a boy called Ashraf, which means the honorable one. For the Amrani family, life was simple but good. Tofa and Ashraf were educated at local schools. They had a good group of friends. Every night they ate well, as Hassan was a passionate chef. Every day they were loved, as Zorha was a professional child carer and an amazing mother. And they lived in a small but beautifully neat maisonette at number four Landor House, which was kept pristine and clean by their very proud mother. In 2007, Hassan and Zoha were overjoyed when Tofa gave them a grandson. Family was everything, and this adorable new addition to their brood proved that all their hard work as parents had paid off. But whereas Tofa excelled, Ashraf struggled. Like many young men, rebelling against his parents' more traditional wishes, Ashrash found it difficult to find his feet and his own identity. But unable to settle on a career, 
and living under his parents' roof and rules. The older he got, the more he felt trapped. And yet, no one could have foreseen what was bubbling underneath. In June 2010, 25-year-old Mohammed Amrani Murakshi, also known as Ashraf, stood trial at Southwark Crown Court. Just as any good parent would do, Hassan and Zorha were there to support their son, as sat in the public gallery, surrounded by scribbling journalists and the victim's furious family, their eyes filled with tears and their heads hung low, as their handcuffed son was led into the dock. For Hassan and Zorha, the trial was mercifully short. But during this ordeal, these good parents were confronted with the shocking and irrefutable evidence of their son's heinous crime. The details of the attack were never reported, and for her protection, the victim's name was withheld. But as a key exhibit in his prosecution, the jury was shown the mobile phone footage which he had shot. Only the jurors saw the grainy images, and those in the gallery only heard the sounds. But their uneasy reactions filled in the blanks of what was obviously a brutal, traumatic and distressing assault. Listening to the video, Hassan and Zorha's hearts were ripped apart by the appalling truth that, just seven months earlier, while they were out earning an honest income to keep him fed and clothed, their son had lured a 23-year-old woman back to their family home. In the pristine rooms that this elderly couple had shared so many happy memories in, their boy barked orders at his petrified hostage and having stripped her naked, beaten her black and blue, and forced this weeping woman to scrub the bath like she was his slave. Having threatened to slash her open with their own kitchen knife, on their bed and in their home, he subjected her to a sustained, brutal and horrifying rape. By the time the video had stopped, with the jury silent, sweating and visibly shaken. Even before they had left to deliberate, there was no denying that Ashraf, the so-called Honourable One, was guilty. In front of everyone, Hassan and Zorha felt a sickening sense of shame as their little boy, who was now branded as a convicted rapist and a registered sex offender, was sentenced to seven years and two months in prison. The conviction was a small consolation for a woman whose life would forever be traumatized by his actions. But with it not being a big story, it was briefly reported in the press and quickly forgotten. That night, Hassan and Zoha returned to the Brunel estate, where their neighbors' polite silences spoke volumes. And yet, behind their own walls, tongues couldn't help but wag. Their sons are convict. Their boys are rapists. And while Ashraf was locked up far away, they were forced to return to their family home, where the brutal rape had taken place. They never spoke of what happened, and out of respect to a loving elderly couple who deserved better, no one dared to question them. With the offender punished and imprisoned, that is where most stories end. Or at least, that is where it should have ended. By the spring of 2014, after four and a half years in prison, and with two and a half left to serve, owing to good behaviour, Ashraf was released. The prisoner early release scheme was designed to help convicts re-assimilate back into society. With many tried and tested systems and safeguards in place, to protect the target, the perpetrator, and any potential victims. It's not foolproof, but it does work. So with strict limitations placed on his movements, Ashraf had to adhere to the terms of his license. 
Rule 1. Offenders must be of good behaviour and must not commit any offence. For his parents, this rule was a blessing, as it kept Ashraf in check. As should he ever be drunk, on drugs, or in possession of a knife, it could terminate his licence and lead to his return to prison for the duration of his sentence. Rule 2. Offenders must keep in touch with their supervising officer and to receive them where they are living. This was a second blessing for his parents, as Ashraf's behaviour, movements and his circumstances would be monitored on a weekly basis by an independent professional. Rule 3. Offenders must permanently live at an address approved by their supervising officer. Again, to prevent him from re-offending, Ashraf was banned from living near his victim or frequenting with other criminals. So although inconvenient, the only place Ashraf could live was with his parents. Rule 4. Offenders must only do work approved by their supervising officer. This posed a big problem, as prior to his incarceration, Ashraf had started training as a plumber. But as the terms of his license prohibited him from being near any children or lone females, this career path was over. Rule 5. Offenders must not travel outside the UK without the permission of their supervising officer. Which meant that, for the next two and a half years, he couldn't visit his relatives in Morocco. But then again, he was a convicted criminal who was still serving his sentence for a violent rape. Like many offenders on license, he had to report to his local police station on a weekly basis. He was placed on a strict curfew, which limited the locations and times he was permitted to be out in public. And he would be subjected to questioning, inspections, drug and polygraph testing on a random basis. Failure to do so could result in his immediate return to prison for the duration of his sentence. But as a convicted sex offender, to protect the public, rightfully, his restrictions were even tougher. Ashraf was placed on Visor, the Violent and Sexual Offenders Register, a nationwide multi-agency system used by the police, probation and prison services to monitor registered sex offenders whose risk factors are assessed by the Jigsaw team, a division of the Metropolitan Police. As part of a sexual harm prevention order, his additional restrictions included Rule 1. Offenders must not use any device which records images and or connects to the internet unless its history is stored for routine inspection. A rule that no one would argue against as part of his conviction related to the recording of violent sexual footage, possibly for his own gratification. Rule 2. Offenders must notify their supervising officer of the information relating to their bank account, passport, mobile phone, credit or debit cards, and details of their vehicle. At any time, the offender's records could be inspected for misdemeanors, which may revoke their license. Rule 3. Offenders must notify their supervising officer when residing in a house with a child for more than 12 hours and are not permitted to be alone with anyone under the age of 18 or any lone females. A rule which would include his mother, his sister and his nephew. As a convicted sex offender who was rightfully being punished, given the length of his sentence and the severity of his crime, even though the terms of his prison license would expire in two and a half years, Ashraf could remain on the sex offender's register for as little as ten years or as long as life. That was part of his punishment. But it also punished those who the offender was forced to live with. After less than a year of living with their 30-year-old son, in a small maisonette at number four Landor House. Both Zorha, who was 59, and Hassan, who was 72, had retired and earned the right to enjoy their twilight years. To relax, to laugh, to smile, to sing, and to share some quality time with their young grandson. 
but with a registered sex offender in their home, their freedoms were curtailed too. As the physical, mental and emotional strain of supporting him took its toll, Hassan and Zoha began to look older and frailer, and although they had always been decent law-abiding citizens, they were being penalized too, except their only crime was being a birth relative of the offender. Unable to support himself, the elderly couple provided their son with everything he needed, but slowly their limited finances drained away. Living in the same house that this convicted rapist had committed his sexual assault, each day was a painful reminder of his horrifying crime. Being shut in, as he spiralled into a depressive decline, attempted suicide several times, and failed to get psychiatric help, tensions began to grow, as fueled by cannabis and ecstasy, his aggressive and violent outbursts escalated. But Hassan and Zoha were trapped. In early February 2015, high on drugs, low on mood, mentally collapsing, and with none of the systems in place seeming to communicate, even though he had broken almost all of the terms of his license, friends and neighbours grew concerned for Ashraf's mental health, as well as the safety of his parents. One week prior, three friends stated that Ashraf was unusually agitated and tense. One saw him pacing and brandishing a kitchen knife. Another said he had a face like thunder and looked like he was going to kill someone. And a third stated he had flown into a blind rage and had attempted to strangle him. Ashraf had committed several serious probation breaches, just one of which could have led to his immediate return to prison and psychiatric help. But the system failed, and it would fail again and again and again. On Tuesday the 10th of February, at roughly 1am, police were called to reports of a disturbance in Westbourne Park. An Arabic male, in his early 30s, was witnessed chasing a member of the public whilst wielding a large knife. Assigned to the incident, Sergeant Gordon and PC Gill disarmed the assailant, restrained him with handcuffs and leg straps, secured him in the back of the van, and arrested him on suspicion of causing an affray and allegedly threatening a man with a knife. As arrests go, it was textbook. With no wallet, the suspect gave the officers a false name, but having used this alias before, the Police National Database linked the suspect's details to 30-year-old Ashraf Amrani of Four Landor House. Seeing that he was a convicted sex offender, out on license, who had violated multiple conditions of his probation, including curfew, drugs, assault, use of an offensive weapon, and giving false details to the police, he was detained and driven to Paddington Police Station. Again, as arrests go, it was textbook. En route, Ashraf began to deteriorate, and concerned for his health, officers took him to St. Mary's Hospital, where medics discovered he had taken nine ecstasy tablets. Being too sick to be detained, and requiring two days to stabilize his condition, standard practice was to assign an officer to guard this convicted sex offender until he was fit to be formally charged and returned to prison. But he wasn't. In a decision that Sergeant Gordon later admitted was very wrong, Ashraf was released on street bail, a discretionary power for frontline officers which requires the offender to volunteer themselves on a later date at a local police station, a power reserved for minor offences like shoplifting. He then left the prisoner in the custody of the medics and told them to call 999 should he attempt to leave. At no point during this incident did the arresting officer inform the probation service that one of their violent sexual offenders had been arrested, as there was no law in place which required him to. At 3am, 
Ashraf discharged himself from hospital. The next day, Zohar was seen walking through the Brunel estate. A neighbor stated she looked tired and talked of wanting to return to Morocco. They didn't speak long, as Hassan needed her back home quickly. Zohar waved a goodbye, entered her front door, and was never seen again. Nobody saw or heard anything. And although, later that evening, police were dispatched to report of a disturbance, as the occupier refused to open the door, they were unable to gain entry to Foreland or House. On Friday the 13th of February, just a few hours later, paramedics were called to Mickleton House, a seven-story block of flats next to Landor House. Entering via Westbourne Park Road and to the left of the Rabbit's Warren of Garages, Ashraf was found on the first-floor roof of the communal bin store. He was alive, but unresponsive. With high levels of cannabis and ecstasy in his system, and several self-inflicted knife wounds slashed across his wrists, Ashraf had staggered up the exterior circular staircase, leaving an ever-increasing trail of blood right up to the top. And from its highest point, the chronically depressed man had thrown himself from the seventh floor, plunging almost 60 feet as his body slammed onto the concrete roof below. Fracturing and breaking his legs, his ribs, his back, his pelvis, and sustaining a severe head trauma. He was rushed to St. Mary's Hospital, but later that day, he died of his injuries. As part of protocol, on Saturday the 15th of February, police were sent to Forlandor House to notify Hassan and Zohar Amrani that their son had died. The officers knocked, but got no reply. The curtains were closed, the house was silent, and the neighbours were concerned, having not seen the couple for two days. Forcing entry, and seeing signs of a violent struggle, the police found two bodies. Dumped in the bath, 72-year-old Hassan had been stabbed in the stomach. The kitchen knife had sliced into his liver, as slowly the frail pensioner bled out and crouched in a fetal position on the floor of the downstairs toilet. 59-year-old Zorha had been suffocated with a plastic carrier bag and repeatedly beaten over the head. An investigation was launched, but no other suspects were sought. An inquest was held at the Royal Court of Justice on the 9th of August 2015, where the jury returned a verdict that Ashraf Amrani had unlawfully killed his parents and committed suicide whilst the balance of his mind was disturbed. His drug abuse, his mental state and the restrictions of his license were taken into account, with Sergeant Gordon's decision to issue a street bail raised as a significant factor in all three deaths, as well as multiple failings by Visor, Jigsaw, the Met Police and the legal system itself. Mr Richmond QC, solicitor on behalf of the Amrani family, wrote to the Home Secretary insisting that all agencies involved in an offender's probation must be informed of any arrest by those out on licence. Having referred the matter to the Independent Police Complaints Commission, the Met Police stated that they would implement the three following recommendations. Firstly, that Sergeant Gordon would be issued with a written warning for misconduct. Secondly, that street bail is only authorised by a custody sergeant. And thirdly, the jigsaw units are informed as soon as one of their offenders is arrested, bailed or charged. As of today, only the first recommendation has been put in place. 
the Prisoner Early Release Scheme was designed to protect the victim, the culprit and the public. But what it often fails to recognize is that when a prisoner is released and the conditions of their license is rightfully strict to stop them reoffending, this can have a serious impact on the innocent. Those good, decent people on the periphery of the case, like Hassan and Zohar Amrani, the offender's parents. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you so much for listening to Murder Mile. Up next is my weekly bladdy bladdy blah, glug glug glug, munch munch munch, complete with some aimless waffle and a quiz. Ooh. So stay tuned till after the break for Extra Mile. Before that, a big thank you to my new Patreon supporters, who are Julie Balchin, Caroline Collins, Cecily Brinkman, and Susie Q. I thank you. With a special thank you to Jeff Leach and Anne-Marie Griffin for those very kind donations, which probably haven't been squandered on cake. Probably. So I thank you. Plus, a big thank you to everyone who posted a review of Murder Mile on your favourite podcast app. I did a shout-out this week on social media, and loads of people came rushing to the rescue. So I thank all of you. Murder Mile was researched, written and performed by myself, with the main musical themes written and performed by Eric Stein and John Books of Cult With No Name. Thank you for listening, and sleep well. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Always get that bit wrong. Why do I always get that right wrong? Anyway. Oh, hello, everyone. Oh, stretch time. I was just saying to myself, I always get that wrong. I always do. Uh, the well at the end of sleep well always goes quite good. Sleep well. And I always forget to put the l at the end. So I have to or every time I record this, I have to go back in and go and sleep well. And then I have to go back in and go sleep well. But just then I came back in. I went, thank you for sleeping. I was like, thank you for sleeping. It's like sleeping. What is going on? Oh, let's open some windows, shall we? Let's put on my tea. That was a long record. It wasn't super long, but it was uh, it was long enough. Get a bit tired. Oh. And there were some little baby coots outside, getting all noisy, getting all me 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 me. There's a family of I think I think there's about four or five mini coots outside. Let me just put my water in here. Uh, I need tea. Tea, milk, 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 lemonade around the corner, chocolates made. There we go. Pop that in there, make sure gas on. There we go. What's today's treat? Oh, there we go. Right. Gonna open up some windows. Oh, yeah, fresh air. God, it's nice to have some fresh air. Outside with some little, little baby coots. They're all fluffy at the moment and, uh, 
I could see them get. I could hear them going, me, 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 making all their little noises. Hang on. Oh, open up some more windows. Oh, fresh air. That's nice. That is nice. Right. How is everyone? Are we all good? Are we all good and well and keeping healthy and active and uh, etc. Scrunch up my note. I had to put a little note next to my screen to make sure I pronounced everyone's names correctly. Zoha, Tofa. That was all fine. I struggled with uh, Ashraf. It's easy name to say, but when you were, it's like Ashraf, not a problem. Ashraf. I, I, I was there going. That's fine. It's an easy name to pronounce, but when you tie it in with other things, other words. It gets convoluted, it gets lost. It's just, oh, it's such a... I kept recording that going, what a bloody stupid name. Why couldn't he have an easy pronounced name? Because when you tie in Ashraf's... I can't remember what words I said, but it was it was kind of when you tie it in with other words, it all gets, oh, it all gets messy anyway. Whew, right. Um, what's going on here? Not much. We're still in the same place. Haven't moved much, which is good. I think we're here for a couple of weeks more, I hope. Hopefully... I know in some countries now lockdown is being eased. Bit stupid, really. Let's be honest, the infection rate is still going up. Death rate is still escalating. I know people are saying the curve is flattening, but it's still going up. If you look, it's still increasing. It's like we're not we're not having less deaths. We're still having more people are dying. So uh, it's a bit ridiculous, especially in... I'm sorry to say, especially in the USA and uh, UK, what we first and second highest death toll and we're starting to ease things already things are only going to get worse people so uh i'm going to hunker down even more let everyone else be silly share all that desperate to get i I saw that my sister lives in texas and i saw that started opening nail salons yeah vital stuff nail salons barbers it's like tanning salons it's like for god's sake it's like they're not even opening essential stuff they're just going oh yeah this this might be nice stupid so uh, yeah we're gonna get a second strain come back in oh hunker down everyone hunker down stay say stay safe be sensible uh i haven't moved much here so i'm just doing bits and pieces at the moment i was uh out Yesterday, doing a little bit of painting on the boat because the hot weather, cold weather does tend to crack the paint. Uh, and I went outside. I was like, oh, shit, one side was really, really cracked in places. So I've had to go out with what little paint I have because it's a special type of paint, special colour, going, doing it up. And then I've I've knackered up my left arm, not my good arm, because I was waxing the boat. I put special carnauba wax on it to keep it all safe. But I've buggered up my left arm now, which is not good. <sighs> right, um... If you follow me on social media, you'll see that I've, I've been doing a bit of a biscuit update recently. Biscuit update, which has all been good. Uh, so hats off to the people at McVitie's. Well, not quite hats off. You've kind of bulls up a bit. Hats off to the people at McVitie's for creating uh, this new one that I tried. Oh, the McVitie's Chocolate Digestive, which is... The digestive is nice. Chocolate Digestive is nice anyway. Good job. It's easy to balls it up because it's such a simple combination. They did one called the... Uh, the one which is flavoured with marmalade on toast. And I thought, oh, this could be awful. But it's quite, it was nice. The marmalade in it was subtle. It was like you eat it and you go, well, that's just, that's just uh, uh, digestive with chocolate. The chocolate's still good. And you go, Meh. and then like a second later, the, the marmalade flavour creeps in. And I was like, hmm, that's really nice. And I, I you know, I, I ate the whole pack just to make sure it was right. Uh, it was very nice. Uh, unfortunately, the next day I tried McVitie's Twist, which is uh, a digestive. For anyone who doesn't know what a digestive is, it's just a very, very wheaty biscuit. It's a very, it's it's a nice, simple biscuit. You can dunk in tea. It's just basically uh, wheat and sugar, really. But it's it's it's, it's a nice, simple biscuit. It's very nice. Oh, 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 my screen's gone off. Uh, there we go. All good. Uh, but the, unfortunately, a McVitie's twist step too far. What they've done is digestive biscuit, which is very simple. It's quite textured. They put coconut in it, which is textured anyway. So you can't you can't get a sense of the coconut in there because there's too much texture. You can't taste the coconut because they've already put chocolate in there. So basically, the, the chocolate is nothing. It's just mush. The coconut doesn't exist. It ruins the texture of the digestive. They did a really bad job. Really bad do- job, digest uh, McVitie's. So, McVitie's, your marmalade one is excellent, 10 out of 10. Your chocolate coconut twist, 2 out of 10. 
I did eat the whole pack, but then I am a big fat bastard. Right, tease up. Water in. Ooh, I've got proper milk today, haven't I? Yes, I got some proper milk. I've got some. I got some. Uh, some cow tit juice. Gonna let that stew in there. I've put me cow tit juice in there. It's amazing that we all th we all we all go like you see you see um, uh, like people complain they go you know a woman's breastfeeding in a, in a place and they go oh, it's disgusting it's disgusting and yet we're all happy to sit there drinking drinks which have come from the tits of a cow we're okay with suckling on the milk of another species but if we see someone doing something perfectly natural and we all go oh, it's disgusting it's weird isn't it people are weird anyway biscuits uh good old jaffa cakes old school biscuit very good and i'm just about to try Look at these special edition Maryland cookies, cookies and cream version. It's a, it's a big pack, and I guarantee you it won't last the day. Right, just uh, just wanted to say um, I, I've launched these on social media, but this uh, for everyone out there now. I've been meaning to do this for ages, and I just haven't had the time. But I, I made time to make sure it was done. Uh, so there's new designs up at the moment. So you know I have the eShop on my website, and you can go there. You can get basic things. You know you can get all my eBooks are on there. All the ringtones are on there. I've put all the quizzes on there as well. You can buy mugs and badges and the exclusive murder mile thank you cards, and they're all on there. But because over limited space, I can't put a full range on there. But oh, I'm out of breath. But I have a thing called uh, the a threadless account. And basically what that is, it's nice and simple for me. Basically, I upload a design and Threadless do all the hard work. They do all the sales. They do all the making of the product. They do all the shipping. So basically, if you buy something from them, it's an agreement with them, not with me. I'm just the designer uploading an image. And I I make a tiny amount of money. But for me, it's fine because it's, you know, it's um, oh, it's 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 easy. It's easy. And it's, you know, it's a good way of getting the murder mile out there. And so what I decided to do was do some interesting designs. So... Uh, with the help of my good friend, Mr. Mark Rushmere, who's uh, my old university buddy, who's a very, very talented artist, doing a great job working for the NHS at the moment, but also I always regarded him as a talented artist. So when I, I knew there were some designs that I had copyright issues with, I knew that if I went to him and asked him to do a, a version for me, that would help me get around uh, copyright. So we've got new designs up on, on uh, the Threadless uh, account. There's a link in the show notes. There's also one on my website. We have some Dennis. Uh, there's a Dennis Nielsen one that I've done. Uh, there's a Reg Christie one that people people are finding quite amusing. So that's up there now. Uh, a really nice Blackout Ripper one. Um, because I can't use the original Blackout Ripper face, his image. Uh, Mark has very kindly done. It's a very fine drawing. It, it in real life, like you'll get it blown up on a T-shirt. That'll be bigger than the version he's done for me. The vision he version he sent me was tiny but what he's done is he's used a, a a pen and he's done it's it's made with tiny little dots it looks almost photorealistic it's really really not photorealistic but it's really accurate but it's just done with little dots you look really finely and it is it's just little dots it's very carefully done it took him a long time so uh there's a blackout ripper one i've done a john george haig one so a, uh a sulfuric one is on there there's a special one uh regarding police constable arsenal guinness of which mr guinness is himself has has approved of it already uh, and there's also the original murder mile design on there so you can go onto that website i've rigged everything up all the images are on there uh all you need to do select the ones you want and you can either have it on t-shirts you can have it on mugs you can have it on bags you can have it on duvet covers literally threadless allow you to do anything so there's lots of fun designs i think there's about eight up there at the moment and what i'm going to do is just going to keep adding to those designs so uh i'll add show new ones on social media but on there you can go on there and just download whatever you like if there are any new designs you think i should do let let me know and i'll see i'll see what i can rustle up i'm not a great designer i'm kind of better at photoshop but uh, Mark is is helping me with the with the, the complicated things at the moment, the, the the stuff that requires an actual artist. Anyway, there's a link in the show notes, so have a look at that. Have a little browse. Whew, right, grab my tea, and then we'll do the questions. Uh, oh, I put too much too much um, too much fluid in it. Fluid. 
Oh, I've got some Twixes to eat as well. Oh, Twixes. You can't beat a Twix. Twix, lovely. Oh, I did I did buy too many treats yesterday. Bollocks to it, I don't care. Oh, I may be broke, but I could still afford some, uh, some treats. Right, 10 questions. Everyone get ready. Uh, some are easy, some are hard. Some may disappear if I... Uh, no, I'm, I'm not going to... Um, I'm not going to edit them out. Some may not exist. Uh, and some answers I may accidentally give away in the next section when we're doing the extra mile bit. So I apologise for that, but it happens. For some reason, I'm out of breath. Right. Whew. Question one. Ashraf was his middle name, but what was his first name? Mm. It was in there. Did you remember it? He's got a bloody long name. Uh, says me. Uh, question number two. Uh, the Amrani family originated from which country? Mm. Question number three. Visor stands for what? I can't give you a clue on that one because that will tell you what it is. Uh, question four. At the start, I described Westbourne Park Road as the architectural equivalent of what? Oh, I'm going to sneeze. Uh, uh. <coughs> not coronavirus right uh question five ashraf's oh, see it's happened again bloody name i think people deliberately have awkward names just so i can't write an episode about them i will but it's bloody difficult question five ashraf's conviction for rape was was tried at which court? Mm. Question number six. Which two drugs were found in his system? Question number seven. What does Ashraf mean in Arabic? I love doing that. Even though it's, it wasn't listed anywhere, I was like, what do these names mean? So I started searching. <sighs> Because obviously overseas, names mean something, whereas in our country, it means shit. <laughs> uh, question eight. Ape? Question, my brain is so gone today. Question eight. Ashraf was training to be what occupation before he was incarcerated? Question nine. What was the name of the... What was the name of the... Oh, this has been going on throughout. Question nine. What was the name of the other officer, not Sergeant Gordon, who arrested Ashraf three days before his arrest? I've made a little note in my notes beyond this, not to mention his name. Uh, and question 10. This isn't in the episode, but let's see if you know this. Uh, which other suicide and murder victims were taken to St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, where they subsequently died? This occurred in an earlier episode of Murder Mile, but can you remember who they were? Right, okay. Uh, so this case, uh, what I did was, I, obviously I went to the archives uh, and I did all my research. And what I like to do, because the archives have, have a tendency to have, their cases tend to be a little bit old. The, the newest ones I've ever found is late 70s. Because obviously you need to have at least a generation or so. It's usually three generations of family need to have kind of moved on before they can release the papers. Uh, in Dennis Nielsen's case, it's it's a hundred years. So trying to track down Dennis's stuff is is a real nightmare. It'll, by the time it's released, it'll have been picked over th so many times. So um, what I try to do every so often is uh, with the Beast case was a good example. Uh, I try to find newer cases so I can cut flesh flesh it out. So we're not doing cases in the nineteen forties all the time. It's kind of, do you know? I I do if there's if there's one in the forties, then next week it'll be the. Tw 2010s and then we can go back to the 1800s and we can move around so it's so you know the episodes always feel different and we're not stuck there's nothing worse than going you know uh, having the same episodes again in a week in the same era i think it's nice to change it up so um obviously there's no file in the national archives so i had to use a, a lot of press reports which i don't like doing because they're not always accurate that took that actually took a long time to go through and work out which press reports were bullshit and which were true I tried to do a lot of checking with that luckily because uh, I'm in the area there's a lot of local knowledge I chatted to a lot of people 
Um, do you know, a lot of people were, because this is only five years ago, so a lot of people were around and lived nearby, so they remember the case, so it's it's not too difficult. Um... But but the reason I don't enjoy doing kind of local, uh, new, fresher cases like this is because because it's so fresh. Um, a lot of the details in the press reports are quite vague. Do you know if you read if you listen to the other episodes I do on Murder Mile, I try and get it as detailed as possible, and quite often there's a lot of details that I can't give you. Whereas when it's in news reports, it's it's very vague. There's very little. There's a lot of restrictions on what they can and can't tell you. There's a lot of restrictions on what they can find out. So, you know, it's vague all the way. So uh, that's why the those episodes are really difficult as well. Also, you have to play a fine line because obviously uh, the families are still alive, relatives, people involved. You know, there's, uh, you know, it's only five years old. So a lot of uh, a lot of the emotions are probably still quite raw. And the last thing you really want to do is go in and go, oh, this guy's a paedophile and this person's a tosser, and ah, which some podcasts do, but you know, I try and play a very fair game with this. And this was a really difficult episode to write, if if you consider it. The guy involved is a um, is a convicted sex offender, a rapist, uh, and I knew I wasn't going to tell the victim's story because that, well, I mean, that's kind of held back. There's no, no one knows her name. I couldn't find out her name. I know that she's 23 years old. I know that she's female. That's it. Uh, someone in one report, they said she was a relative, but it, that can't be proven either. So I don't know, really don't know much about it. So anyway, uh, here's a couple of details uh, to do with the trial that I didn't put into the episode just because I felt we needed to get to the end quicker, which I do a lot. So, Mr. Richmond QC, who was uh, one of the lawyers there, revealed to the jurors after the verdict that Sergeant Gordon, who was the the officer there who had uh, issued the the street bail, had been through a misconduct hearing with regard to his street bail decision, receiving a written warning from the police force. He added, you probably saw that what happened had a profound effect on him, Sergeant Gordon. Well, obviously. Can you, can you imagine that kind of knowing that you made you made a one-off decision probably just probably because he was busy and he was like a lot going on and the police are understaffed and underfunded and you know and what's he going to do have an officer standing there for 48 hours to wait in shifts or i mean we'll get into this very shortly so do you know he, he knows he made a bad decision it's probably ruined his entire career but you know it does happen people make mistakes we have to accept that uh, at a pre-inquest review, Assistant Coroner Dr Shirley Radcliffe said it was a tragic incident happened when Amrani was out on licence. He had been arrested on suspicion of a fray which he was fighting in public on the 10th of February after allegedly threatening a man with a knife and was granted bail. But James Meehan, representing Mr and Mrs Amrani's daughter, told the hearing... This is a sex offender on the sex offenders register on license. He was accused of committing a relatively serious violent offence and admitted taking drugs, both in breach of his license. There are serious questions as to why he was not recalled to prison, as well as why he was given bail. Uh, obviously, the Met Police said that there was a lot of missed opportunities there. Uh, and concerns about Mr Amrani's ongoing vo- uh, volatility. Uh, the court heard how the uh, the sergeant, Sergeant Gordon, had conducted a national police computer search of Amrani, who had given an alias to the officers, and discovered that there were five names he had known to have used before, which is why the police always write down people's aliases, because aliases always come back. Um, uh, Mr Richmond asked... Uh, uh, weren't there alarm bells ringing in you that you had a convicted rapist potentially changing his name? Sergeant Gordon said it wasn't that he was using that name for the first time. It was that it was always on his record. I did not really consider that. He added that at about 1am, his partner, the other officer there, name redacted for sake of the quiz. See, I'm learning had informed him that Amrani, who had previously been restrained with handcuffs and leg straps, was now was now quite calm and seemed to accept that he needed uh, a stay in hospital for 48 hours. So this was by the time he got to um, the hospital. Sergeant Gordon admitted that making this a bail condition would have helped, saying he drew on his experience and went, uh, went off what he had been told about the situation at the hospital. He added he had... Uh, 
Ashraf had taken a lot of drugs. I just thought now he was more reasonable, was coming down off the drugs and the danger had passed. The court heard heard how Amrani had been convicted for the possession of an offensive weapon, which Sergeant Gordon said he was aware of after checking his records. What else is here? Hang on. I'm just just seeing what else I've got here as well. Ah... Oh yeah, uh, Mr. Richmond asked, who was the Mr. Richmond QC asked, uh, "We have heard from the family drug abuse was much more problematic. Had you been aware he had an ongoing drug problem, what effect uh, would that have had on your decision to bail?" Sergeant Gordon said, "I generally thought this was a one-off. Someone who is a substantial user generally does not overdose on drugs." Uh, in his evidence, uh, the other officer, name redacted by myself, um, said he was told by Sergeant Gordon to relay to the medics at the hospital that if Amrani w- tried to leave, they should call 999. Mr. Richmond described this decision as pretty useless because in the absence of an offence, because obviously by this point he uh, he has been arrested but he hasn't been charged, there is nothing they can do, saying it had zero effect whatsoever. Commander Nick Downing uh, of the Metropolitan Police said, Our thoughts and sympathies remain with the Amrani's friends and extended family at this incredibly difficult time. This is a tragic case and the Metropolitan Police Service has fully cooperated with IPCC, the Independent Police Complaints Commission, investigation and have referred to the matter at the earliest opportunity. Uh, Skip. Uh, the jury ruled the decision to give Amrani street bail as a significant factor in the deaths of Mr and Mrs Amrani they also said that the police operation which monitors sex offenders released on licence from prison Operation Jigsaw and the probation service were not made aware of his arrest which also contributed uh, what else was there Uh, asked what lessons can be learnt Commander Nick Downing added it is only right the circumstances surrounding the death of Amrani and his parents have been examined by an independent body to see what lessons can be learnt and to reassure the local community that measures are being taken to improve our practices. The recommendations will make our policies and processes far more robust in the future. Mistakes do happen. I know people will be going, oh, it's a dreadful system, it never works, but it's like, this is the, that's the Daily Mail attitude to things. It's like, if, if something fails once, then it's a failure. Um, but, you know, think of mistakes do, we all make mistakes. This was a massive cock-up. It's a, it's a complicated system. As they say, at, at, at the time of uh, when Ashraf was released on prison, there were almost 50,000 prisoners released on licence in the UK that year. So, if you think about it, that's you know, a high proportion of prisoners that they're having to keep an eye on all the time with various different risk factors. And it's a, it's a complicated thing. Things are going to go wrong. But this is why I'm doing this episode is because reading about this story, I felt that there was kind of a, a an angle of it that was missing. And that was the fact that, you know, um, it's good to have really strict laws and uh, rules surrounding uh, what happens to offenders and sex offenders but it's the family on the periphery of it that often end up in a difficult situation oh i'm looking at those biscuits right um let's do the quiz let's do the answers to the quiz right okie dokie where were we i haven't had a slurp of tea yet oh milky sugary Oh, yes. Right. Question number one. Uh, Ashraf was his middle name, but what was his first name? His first name, there was Kut outside. Uh, his first name, that's not his first name. His first name was Mohammed. Second question. The Amrani family originated from which country? I gave you a big description at the very start. Don't tell me you've forgotten. Northwest Africa, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, mountains, close to the Sahara Desert. It was, of course, Morocco. Question three. Visor stands for what? 
I couldn't really give you a, a clue on that one because it is the Violent and Sexual Offenders Register. It's the Sex Offenders Register. <sighs> Question four. At the start, I described Westbourne Park Road <laughs> as the architectural equivalent of what? I described it as a cinema hot dog. When you look at Westbourne Park Road, it's really long. I know some people will go, it's not in Bayswater. And then someone else will message me and go, it's not in Notting Hill. It's like, it is. It's in Westbourne Park and Notting Hill. It's it's in W2 and it's in W11. It's a long road. Uh, Notting Hill, you've got, on, if you're looking north, it's on the left. You've got Bayswater uh, on the right. But in the middle, this part of Westbourne Park Road is near Westbourne Park. And it's uh, it's not the posh bit. It's the not posh bit. <laughs> to why a couple of good pubs there right uh question five ashraf's conviction for rape was tried at which court if you were to say the royal courts of justice you'd be wrong because that's where the inquest was held into his uh his suicide and the murders his original conviction was held at southwark crown court question six which two drugs were found in Ashraf's system? Oh, burpees. I've been burping all the way through this. I think because I had an egg. I, I, I did a boiled egg last night and I left it in a mug to cool a bit. And then I found it this morning. So I had it this morning and I've gone all burpy. Uh, which two drugs were found in Ashraf's system? It was cannabis and ecstasy. Question seven. Oh, did I give this one away? Uh, what does Ashraf mean in Arabic? I may have already given this one away by mistake. I think I did. Or maybe I didn't. I don't know. Uh, Ashraf in Arabic means the honourable one. Question eight. Ashraf was training to be what occupation? Oh, do you remember? It was a plumber. Question nine. What was the name of the other officer not Sergeant Gordon, who arrested Ashraf three days before his death? The answer was PC Gill. And question 10. This wasn't in the episode, but let's see if you can remember. Uh, which other suicide and murder victims... Actually, it is mentioned in this episode, so it was a good clue. Uh, which other suicide and or murder victims were taken to St Mary's Hospital in Paddington, where they subsequently died? This was an episode earlier in the season. Uh, uh, it was Barbara Shuttleworth and Felix Sturber. That was the, 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 the lover's death pact. Uh, also, St Mary's Hospital, not the one that's there now, but the one that's next to it, the older one, is the hospital where the uh, famous pathologist Sir Bernard Spilsbury trained to be a pathologist. Ooh, excitement. God, I'm out of breath. Right, I'm going to power through, try and edit this as much as possible today, and get a lot done. Yeah, it's a big record. Right, okay. That's me done. I'm going to have some tea. I'm going to have... I've actually got some Berliner donuts as well. So jammy in the centre with a nice kind of uh, uh, a soft uh, sprinkle icing on top. And I've got some Bakewell... Not Bakewell tarts, uh, Belgian buns as well. Not the good ones. I'm not near a Wenzel's, unfortunately. But uh, they will do. And loads of biscuits. Right. I'm going to get stuff done. Uh, that's been fun hope you enjoyed that uh today is the last week's episode you're getting today and i'm recording this now so i'm slightly behind so i need to get this is going to take me a couple of days to edit so by the time the patron listeners get this i will have just finished editing i can't believe i'm behind already right i'm done let's get out of here people everyone stay safe masks on gloves on keep your distance don't be a numpty by going to nail parlors or shit that we don't need to do the viruses will come back unless we're sensible. Everyone stay hunkered down. You've got tea indoors. You've got biscuits. Keep yourself safe. Right, that's me done. Rant over. Right, be good. Lots of love. Speak soon. Bye. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. 
Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com.